Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course everything in between. Don't forget to check out their extensive library of podcasts, of which I have another one. Yes, it's called Sheer and Loathing, and Stephanie, the editor-in-chief, and I sit around and talk about movies for like an hour or so. It's a lot of fun, some good laughs, I hate everything, she loves everything, it's great, it's fun. So after a short break from some true crime stuff, we are going to get back to it. That's what this is all about. Mysteries, legends, myths, and murder. Today we're going to talk about a very strange one that was never actually solved. Those are the best kinds. Has a mystery to it, has some suspense, definitely has some intrigue. This is about the killing of a man called Artemis Ogletree, and even his name had a little bit of confusion when he was first found. So this is the story of Artemis Ogletree, or the mystery of Room 1046. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Naturally, before we start, we should really just check in on just to see who Ogletree was. Well, he was a Florida man born in 1915. Yes, this was a long time ago. Over a hundred years at this point. He was one of three kids. During his childhood, an accident with some hot grease left a sizable scar on his head above his ear. That unfortunate scar remained hairless for the rest of his life, making him look a little strange, we should say. In 1934, he left his family, but by then he was living in Birmingham, Alabama. He decided to hitchhike to California. He did keep an update on his progress by mail, and his family did wire him money from time to time. So that's all about Artemis. Now, I said there was a little bit of a, a mystery surrounding his name as well. Well, that comes from the name he checked into at a hotel. The Hotel President in the Power and Light District of Kansas City, Missouri, supposedly on his way to California. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, we'll get to that. But let's just talk about that hotel stay, as it was one of his last. Now, it was early afternoon on January 2nd, 1935, when Ogletree walked into the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. He asked for an interior room several floors up and gave his name as Roland T. Owen with a Los Angeles address. I don't know why they needed an address, but uh, this is 1935, I guess things are a little bit different. Staff seemed to remember him as he dressed well and he wore a very dark overcoat. He also had no bags with him, which was peculiar to say the least. Ogletree paid for one night and the staff noted that in addition to the visible scar on his temple caused by the unfortunate accident as a child, he also had cauliflower ear, which is something that boxers, MMA fighters, wrestlers tend to get after getting punched in the side of the head a lot. So it was safe to say that he was a very recognizable figure. The staff also believed he was in his early 20s at this time. Now Randolph Propst, a bellhop, accompanied Mr. Ogletree up to the 10th floor via elevator. On the way, Ogletree told him that he had spent the previous night at nearby Mulabach Hotel, but he found the $5, 100 bucks in current dollars, a little too high for his blood. So Propst opened room 1046 which per the guest's request was on the inside overlooking the hotel's interior courtyard rather than the streets beyond. The bellhop continued to watch as Ogletree produced a toothbrush, hair comb, 
and other toiletries from the pocket of his overcoat. He said that was the extent of his unpacking. After Ogletree put those items above the sink, he and Props left the room. The bellboy returned to lock it and gave Ogletree the key. After returning to the lobby, he saw Ogletree leave the hotel. A short time afterwards, Mary Soptig, one of the hotel maids, returned from a day off to work in the afternoon shift. She went into room 1046 and was surprised to find Ogletree there, since the previous night a woman had been in the room. She apologized, but he said she could go ahead and clean the room anyway. While she did, she noticed that he had the shades drawn and only left a very dim lamp on. This would remain the case when she encountered Ogletree in the room on several other occasions during the day, saying, quote, he was either worried about something or just straight up afraid. She told all this to the police, including his preference for very dim or even low light. After she had been cleaning for a short while, Ogletree threw in his overcoat and just left the room, but not before asking if Soptic would leave the door unlocked as he was expecting some friends, which is a little suspect considering we all know what happened to him a short time later. Soptic did as she asked, and at 4pm she returned to the room with freshly laundered towels, and inside the room it was dark. She saw Ogletree lying on the bed, fully dressed. Visible in the light from the hallway was a note on his bedside table that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Fast forward one day to January 3rd. The next morning, Soptic returned to the room, that mysterious room 1046, around 10.30am. The door was locked, which led her to assume that Ogletree was out since it could only be locked from the outside. But when she opened it with her own key, Ogletree was present, sitting in the dark, just where he had been the previous afternoon. The phone rang and he answered it. No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. I'm not hungry at all, he said. Still holding the phone, Ogletree asked Septic about her job as she cleaned. He wanted to know if it was her responsibility for the entire floor and if the president was residential. He repeated his complaint to the Malkbeth extorbitant rates, after which she finished cleaning and left. Again, at 4pm, Soptic returned with some fresh towels, and inside room 1046, she could hear two men talking, so she knocked this time. A voice she described as loud and deep, probably not Ogletree's, asked who it was. She responded that she had brought fresh towels, to which the voice said, quote, we don't need any, end quote. Yet Soptic knew there were no towels in the room as she had taken them herself earlier that morning. Two hours later, Jean Owen of Lee's Summit near Kansas City checked into the presidential after having shopped in the city for a few hours. Feeling ill, she had decided not to drive back home that night, and she was given room 1048. Her boyfriend, who worked in the flower shop in the city, came to visit her at 9.20pm, and stayed for two hours. Later that night, she told police she heard men and women talking loudly and profanely all over the floor. Jean was not the person to note unusual late-night activity on the president's 10th floor. Elevator operator Charles Blocker, who began a shift at midnight, reported that he was fairly busy until 1.30am. After that time, most of the hotel quieted down for the night except for a loud party in room 1055. Blocker recalled one visitor in particular, a woman he had seen at the hotel visiting male guests in the room on other occasions and thus believed her to be a prostitute. A conclusion shared by the other hotel staff who were familiar with her. She came in sometime during Blocker's first three hours. He took her up to the 10th floor where she had asked about room 1026. Five minutes later, the elevator was summoned there again. It turned out to be the same woman who expressed puzzlement that her client was not in room 1046. She said he had called her on previous visits with him and had always been present. She wondered if, in fact, it was room 1024 since she could see through the woman's 
transom window that the light was on in there. She remained on the floor after that conversation. A half hour later, Blocker got another signal to take the elevator back to the 10th floor. The woman was once again waiting and he took her down to the lobby. An hour later, he took her and a different man to the 9th floor at 10.45 a.m. A call from that floor turned out to be the woman in question. He took her to the lobby and she left the hotel for the night. Yet another call to the 9th floor 15 minutes later turned out to be the man who had come up with her in the first place. He told Blocker he could not sleep and was going out for a walk. Plausible. Very, very plausible. Hmm. Maybe to pay the prostitute. That's what he was doing. Ha ha. Mystery solved. Next week on the Ominous Origins. But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now, it's uncertain if any of these activities are actually related to Ogletree and his case. He may or may not have been at the hotel earlier that night. At 11 p.m., Robert Lane, a city worker on the 13th Street near Lydia Avenue, saw a man dressed in only an undershirt, pants, and shoes run into his path and flag him down. When Lane stopped, the man apologized, saying he had mistaken Lane's car for a taxi. The man still asked if he could take him somewhere, because this is 1935, and that's just what you did back in the day. You didn't try to shoot somebody or just run them over because they got in your way. You were like, hey, hey buddy, you're looking for a taxi, I can give you a ride. Where are you going, man? Where are you going? Just let me know. Anyway, Lane said, sure, why not? And the man said, you look as if you've had it bad. As he observed, the man swore... He would kill someone tomorrow in retaliation for whatever had been done to him that night. In the mirror, Lane saw a deep scratch on the man's arm. He also noticed that he was cupping his arm, possibly to catch blood from a more severe wound. At the nearby intersection of 12th Street and Troost Avenue, where taxi drivers often waited for fares during the overnight hours, Lane stopped and let out the man. The man thanked him, got out, and honked the horn of a taxi parked nearby, drawing a driver from a nearby restaurant after which Lane drove away. After Ogletree's death, Lane went to view the body. He saw the same scratch on his arm and went to the police, telling them that he believed Ogletree had been the man he picked up. Now let's jump to January 4th, and at 7am, a new switchboard operator, Della Ferguson, came on to shift. She was preparing to make a requested wake-up call to room 1046 when she noticed a light indicating that the phone in there was off the hook. Props, who had led Ogletree there two days earlier, was once again on shift and drew the assignment to go check on room 1046. The door was indeed locked, with an do not disturb sign hanging from the doorknob. After several loud knocks, a voice from inside told him to enter, however he could not as the door had been locked. The same voice told him after another knock to turn on the lights, but he still couldn't enter. Finally, Props just shouted through the door to hang up the phone and left. Props told Ferguson that the guest in room 1046 was probably drunk and she should wait another hour or so. At 8.30am, the phone had still not been hung up. Another bellboy, Harold Pike, was sent to the 10th floor and the do not disturb side was still on the door and it was still locked. However, Pike had a key to let himself in. Inside the room, he found Ogletree in the dark, lying on the bed, naked, apparently drunk. The light from the hallway showed some dark spots on the bedding, but rather than turn on the light, Pike went to the telephone stand where he said he saw the phone had been knocked to the floor. He put it back on the stand and replaced the handset. Shortly after 10.30 a.m., another operator reported the phone in 10.46 was once again off the hook. Again, Props was sent to the room to see what was going on, and the Do Not Disturb sign still remained on the door. This time he had a key, and after his knocks, drew no response, he opened the door and found Ogletree on his hands and knees about two feet away from him with his head bloodied. Props turned the light on, put the phone back on the hook, then noticed the blood on the walls of both the main room and the bathroom, as well as on the bed itself. Naturally, Props went downstairs immediately to get some help. 
He returned with the assistant manager, but when they did, they could only open the door six inches as Ogletree had in the interim fallen to the floor. Eventually, Ogletree got up when the two hotel employees were able to enter the room. Ogletree went to go sit on the edge of the bathtub. The assistant manager called the police, and they were joined by Dr. Harold Flanders of the Kansas City General Hospital. Ogletree had been bound with a cord around his neck, wrist, and ankles. His neck had further bruising, suggesting someone had been attempting to strangle him. Now, this is where shit gets really, really weird, as he'd been stabbed more than once in the chest above the heart. One of these wounds had actually punctured his lung. Blows to his head had left him with a skull fracture on the right side. In addition to the blood props had seen, there was some additional spatter on the ceiling. He was still alive, keep in mind, at this point, and Dr. Flanders cut the cords from Ogletree's wrist and asked him, well, naturally, who the fuck did this to you? Ogletree just said nobody. Nobody. Did himself, apparently, I don't know. He was then naturally asked what caused the injuries, and he said he had fallen on his head on the bathtub. The doctor asked if he'd been trying to kill himself, and after saying no, Ogletree naturally lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital. He was completely comatose by the time he arrived and died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Now I do think that's a good spot to leave it, because we get to the investigation next. And we'll do that next week on the Ominous Origins podcast. There's still quite a bit to go, and there's still quite a bit of mystery to be had. So I left you with just a little bit of a tantalizing tickle tease. Alliterations are fun. And we'll look at the rest of it next time. So until then, my name is Casey. This has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. And if you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify. You can do so on the mobile app. All you have to do is listen for 30 seconds and then hit that little five-star button. If you do let me know, contact me on social media or wherever you want. Social media is the best way to do it. And I'll give you a shout out. You can still leave reviews on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as well. So if you want to do it that way, go for it. Any five-star reviews still get a shout out on the show. Follow me on social media, on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod, and on Facebook at HorrorShots, which is still blown up for some reason. So thank you to everybody who left a like on that page. So next week we will wrap up the murder of Artemis Ogletree. Until then, have a good one.